Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the DXM podcast. I'm Colborn Bell with the Museum of Crypto Art. We are here today uh, with artist Leo Isikdogan. How are you today? Hi, I'm pretty good. Thank you. How about yourself? Thanks for um, having me. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, we've, we've chatted a little bit, but this is the first time seeing each other. And I, I have to say, I'm a huge, huge fan of your work. Uh, everything you do, it's in, a, in kind of a sea of AI, it immediately caught my attention. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we begin uh, this podcast the same, and that is kind of just giving you the space to introduce yourself and to let everybody know uh, how you found NFTs and crypto art. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. I'm an interdisciplinary researcher, engineer, and artist. I've been doing a lot of things at the same time, uh, but my background is mostly technical. Uh, I have a PhD actually in electrical and computer engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. That degree was purely technical, as you can imagine, but uh, I think it still had a profound impact on my art. My PhD work was at the intersection of computer science, image processing, machine learning, and even environmental engineering. Actually, my co-advisor was in environmental engineering. And together, we created a global river database that documented 40 years of change using satellite imagery. So what I was doing is by basically, uh, there's this uh, data set called Landsat. It's uh, a mission that is observing the Earth. It's publicly available to everybody. So I was analyzing those images using uh, image processing techniques and also machine learning techniques to automatically create a river map of the world. Uh, and this was, I think, for the first time uh, in the world, uh, to the best of my knowledge. I kind of think of this as a piece of artwork. I don't know if it actually counts as a work, counts as an artwork, this data set we created and the papers we published because they were like mostly technical and the people who are citing them are using it for technical purposes. Right. But uh, yeah, I think it still like continues to inspire my art. Uh, as you can see in my art, I use like code and machine learning, which are like transferred skills from my PhD. I, I use those to create art. I get my inspiration from nature. That's the environmental engineering part, like planets, geological formations, and bodies of water, and things like life on Earth. And uh, I've been interested in AI for like a long time. I was also interested in the philosophical side of it. I'm inspired by like philosophical questions, such as whether machines can be creative, how much creativity they can have, how consciousness arises, and things like how perception works. Can they really perceive the world like we do? Or do they have to actually perceive the world like we do? Uh, and my background in art, uh, I don't know how far I should go back. Uh, I had, a, I had a separate master's degree, actually, which was focused on computer vision for art analysis. Uh, it's, we can think of it as an easier problem of uh, easier version of the generation task. Like today, we, we are witnessing an explosion of AI-generated art. And uh, that's also what I wanted to do uh, at the beginning. But in vision analysis, analyzing images is usually an easier task than generation. So initially, I also wanted to build generative AI art models that can generate uh, images. But uh, it wasn't as simple as like, OK, uh, now we have tools to analyze art. Let's just do it backwards and make just more of them. Uh, back then, it was not possible. So, But we did have massive leaps in artificial intelligence uh, technology since then. And uh, many of those advances were achieved by building on top of existing research, both in the field of computer science as well as other fields. 
I collaborated with like a lot of other researchers. Some of them were actually in the art department. So some of them were like in environmental engineering. I really like working interdisciplinary because uh, I think it's one of the greatest ways to be innovative. If you have a problem, uh, trying to solve it from scratch is usually harder than just uh, finding a solution in some other domain that worked and just like adapting it uh, to, uh, to an another field. And uh, I think in artificial intelligence, especially, this is very important because it's inherently interdisciplinary. Mm. And that's one of the reasons I was drawn to artificial intelligence. It draw draws some inspiration from neuroscience and cognitive science. And it has its foundations on like statistics, uh, co computer science, of course, as well. Yeah. And it provides tools for like variety of disciplines, including like social and environmental sciences and art as well. That's what I've been uh, doing. I, I love it. And, and quite frankly, you asked all of the questions that I want to cover. I will say that I am uh, very much the least technical person that exists. I studied all of the soft sciences, psychology and economics. Um, but I think I have, you know, I have an eye for, I, I think, what is new and what is interesting. Again, your, your art is so vibrant. It's so colorful. It puts nature and the machine in such a wonderful communication. Um, and maybe the, the question to ask is, uh, why? Why, you know, such disparate things? Is it just to discover perhaps that question that you asked is like, what is the creativity of that machine in something that is so foreign to itself? Yeah, one of the, one of the reasons uh, I was drawn to uh, artificial intelligence is that uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting field. Like we can think of it in two different ways. We can just see it as a merely tool, uh, some just uh, advanced to a brush basically to create art. We can also start to think like, I wonder if at some point we'll start to think of them as uh, independent artists themselves. Uh, and I start to question like, what is creativity? Where, at what level we would consider machines to be creative? Uh, to be honest, right now, I don't consider machines to be creative at all. I just see them as like advanced tools. Uh, and there's like so much uh, me in my art artwork. Uh, I put like a lot of effort into it. So it, it's nowhere near like fully autonomous, but what if we get to some stage that it's fully autonomous? What if we, don't do anything at all. Like how I work right now is that I usually come up with a concept and I more or less have an idea of what I want to create, but uh, sometimes machine has its own mind. It creates something a little bit different. Sometimes it's surprising in a good way, but usually I do have a plan. It's not like completely arbitrary with some exceptions, with some exceptions. Right. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. But in the future, maybe like the machines can come up with the concepts, they can, uh, do the whole thing end to end. Then are we going to call them creative or are we, are we going to just call them they're imitating humans? Is that an end goal for you? you do you want to create kind of a, a, a sentient AI that is its own artist? That's not my area of research. I think a lot of researchers are working on that. That was one of my childhood, not childhood, but like this, let's say teenage dreams that I had. But uh, I don't think I can compete with the researchers that are working on it right now, especially now that I'm not a full-time researcher. I have a full-time job. It's, it's, it does have a research component, but I'm definitely not working on uh, AGI. Uh, there, there are like so many research labs fully focused on that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Does your job in any way relate to the art that you create? 
or is it? It, it does have an artistic component, so it doesn't relate to my art directly. But what I'm working on is, as a study, is uh, what's called computational photography and computational cinematography. So basically, it's the yeah, the field of research that makes images that we look at better using computational techniques. That's how smartphone cameras can create such beautiful images that look almost as good as DSLR, uh, DSLR cameras, despite having like such tiny sensors, uh, right. so much advanced processing techniques go into those uh, smartphone cameras. So that's uh, in general uh, what me and my team is working on. Presumably you build your own models? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't invent everything from scratch, obviously. I build my work on top of uh, existing research, but yeah, uh, I like customizing everything I have. I like building my models, both like training them, also designing them. I have usually some different design choices than the mainstream models. Right. So, and you know, you touched on that most of the time things are planned, but sometimes things go awry. And you know, there was a piece of yours that, that very much caught my attention and, and that was Death of an AI. If you could, like, please tell me about this work, Death of an AI. Yes, I, absolutely. So I, I was actually working on something else when I was working on that. I was, uh, I think, I'm not sure what I was exactly trying to do, but I think I was trying to do like uh, some translation in any direction. I was trying to like rotate the camera and uh, move the scene, have like some panorama. It, I did something like that before, but I was trying to do like some more uh, advanced version of that. And then uh, I was also like monitoring the results. All of a sudden I realized that it kind of looked like it was dying, like when I visualized it. And the model was actually dying as well. And there were like many opportunities for me to have some puns uh, for both like machine learning and also like uh, uh, eulogies uh, about uh, <laughs> artificial beings. It was, it was funny, like I could, uh, let me check what I wrote in the description. Yes, the, the, the artwork captures the visions of an AI art model in its last moments. The model passed away because of complications from a variant of an artificial neural network disorder known as exploding gradients, which is a well-known problem. So what exploding gradients uh, is, is uh, Basically, when we uh, apply, we do like backwards and forwards uh, steps when we train models. And sometimes, like if the parameter is out of range, uh, something you have like it, I don't know how to explain it, not so technically, but it accumulates very fast. Let's say like you have like 1.1, and then it gets multiplied every time, and then yeah. it goes out of range very quickly. So that's one of the reasons uh, the model uh, basically died. And in the, I go on to say it is survived by its parent checkpoints. I always checkpoint so I can continue from there. There are several forks. It had many different versions and fine-tuned cousins. The model loved training hard. I trained it so much and uh, dreaming about <laughs> landscapes. Its legacy will live on. Come on, man. This is very funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is very funny. I, I, uh, I haven't, you know, ever seen so much like this it's it's always you know it, it seems like it's hard for me to talk about right because i do not understand it but the output is so incredible and you know i just uh i had a a large dinner party here and you know i was kind of celebrating fall and i had um another one of your works uh, I forget the name, but it's the one that that rotates so beautifully through kind of like the seasons and seasonality. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had it projected large just as people came in and they were blown away, right? It's. I think I had two, two of them, I, an impressionist's world, I believe. That one, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe we can just talk about, you know, how you built this and kind of what the objective was and if perhaps you think... 
you achieved your intended result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things I, when I started working on that was uh, I thought when I was a child, I thought the background, I actually didn't think like that, but I always thought like uh, 50s and 60s uh, were always like black and, black and white because the movies were black right. and white. And then I just like extended that idea to even farther back in the future, in the, in the past. Uh, uh, if you look at the paintings of that era, was that era like that? Uh, it wasn't like that. The world was pretty much the same always. Like I've looked at a video, for example, that was recorded with an HD camera, I think in 1996 or 1998, uh, New York, municipality of New York or something. They had a very high-end camera and it looks like it's almost today, like except for the cars and maybe like the office of people, it looks almost like today. And I think if you go back in time, hundreds of years, the world probably looks pretty much the same except for the technology and like uh, architecture and a few more other things. It didn't like people didn't perceive the world differently. But when we look at things like uh, movies of that time, it does, we have the feeling that that era actually looked like that. And if you look at the Impressionist era, for example, we may have the impression that the Impressionist era kind of looked like that. So yeah. the, the, the artwork, I wanted to illustrate that what an, uh, what an Impressionist's world would actually look like if we looked at the world at that time period from the eyes of an Impressionist, uh, what would we see if it was actually represented by the paintings that was made in that era? Is, do you think there's a line to be drawn between kind of like the soft fuzziness of impressionism and perhaps, you know, like l the latent space of AI and how it's kind of uh, interpret interpreting perhaps like broader, I don't even know what to call it, like a probability field? It, it does certainly have similarities. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, what I see uh, traversing the latent space of a network is like... Uh, taking pictures uh, in its mind, but it's not like the actual real world, but it's more like an impression of it. So in that sense, I think it has some similarities to uh, impressionism. I just, I get so lost in uh, your artworks. Tell me more about um, where you want to go from, from here. Yeah, actually, like I usually have both like short term and uh, long term goals, but I usually end up in like completely different places because technology is moving so fast that uh, we need to just adapt and pivot quickly. So I, I know that whatever I say now today uh, will <laughs> become irrelevant next year. But in right. general, I, I can say that like I want to continue to push the boundaries of what's possible with technology and art. And uh, I want to be able to look back and say that I made a significant impact on the field of uh, both computer science and art. And I also want to like inspire people. When I was uh, growing up, so many people discouraged me from studying computer science and engineering. They were saying like, yeah, like everybody knows how to use a computer these days. Like you don't really need a degree to do that. I mean, you, you don't need to do, actually, you don't need a degree to do that. A degree definitely helps, but uh, you can learn everything by yourself. But still, if I study something else, I wouldn't have the time to work on that. So even if it's possible to do all of these things without having a degree, I would allocate all my time to something else if I study something like completely different, like medicine or something. Right. And it's, to be fair, you, you also give back through these videos that you do? What videos? These YouTube videos, these educational... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the YouTube video. I haven't been very active lately. I used to make videos more frequently. But yeah, I, I do have like a series called uh, 
a machine learning crash course, uh, which is a very short overview of the essential topics uh, in machine learning. I also have a series about image and video processing as well. I also have like some random videos about things just I like talking about, basically. I love it. It's, it's, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super, super cool. Uh, Wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, maybe we can delve into um, perhaps some more of like the the, the philosophical implications and uh, of of we never actually really touched on what brought you to crypto art and NFTs in the first. Yeah, point. yeah, yeah. We can yeah. we can talk about that. Yeah. I think it's because uh, I like to work on the bleeding edge of technology and art. Uh, I'm always looking for new ways to create and explore. And that's, I think, one of the reasons I'm drawn to the NFT space. Actually, I didn't know much about NFTs until like 2020. Uh, before that, I was, I, I was creating art. I had an Instagram account, but I, wasn't, I, I didn't make any NFTs. I had no idea what it was. I knew about crypto a little bit. I think my first introduction to Bitcoin was like in 2013 or something. That was the time I opened some Coinbase account or something. And also I had a friend who was having a PhD actually in uh, blockchain. He's, his dissertation may be one of the first dissertations in blockchain. Uh, that, that's how I uh, uh, learned about crypto. And I think after I learned about NFTs, they seem to be a great way to represent transfer and keep track of art especially digital art uh, there are some like other some startups that combine like physical and uh, nfts as well but i think especially for for digital art uh, th that's a great way to represent art because they're uh, they make it easy to keep track and uh, they make sure that it's unique if it's unique or addition they're immutable uh, and transparent and i think nfts have the potential to change the way we interact with and value art, uh, mainly digital art. But uh, in, in general, I think I, I see a lot of value in that. I know we're right now, we're in a bear market, but uh, markets have their cycles. I, I've seen like two or three more uh, market crashes, uh, especially in crypto, but in regular stock market as well. Right now, like even the normal stock market, tech stock, everything is down. Everything is down. Yeah, we, we, had, our, <laughs> we had our fun time and now, you know, we have to... Uh... <laughs> We have to make it real. And um, I imagine probably none of the kind of like the mania particularly affected you. I, I recognize you to kind of see just like the underlying reason as to why this is important. And I think you've touched on many like really nice points there. Mm -hmm. um, do you think perhaps that like the, the multinodal structure, this uh, almost like hyper evolutionary uh, Darwinianism of like ideas and capital. Um, do you think that is, you know, perhaps an economic system that is more connected to nature? I think there might be a link. I think uh, there might be a reason we have uh, bubbles in any kind of financial markets. Uh, it, it may even have serve a good purpose if you look at the long term, for example, when there's hype, everything gets investment. This applies not only to crypto, like startups, startups as, as well, like everything, even things that are not viable, they get so much investment. And then once everything goes down, only the best ones survive and everything else is uh, weeded out. So it's kind of like natural selection uh, in a way. And then at every cycle, we keep getting better and better solutions, better and better companies, better and better products. It is, it's incredible. You know, I've, I've been around this for a while now to, 
yeah, to yeah. see it in action, to kind of understand and, and know what could be uh, like vibrant and attractive and compelling. And um, yeah, I, I just fell in love with the people that we're creating in this space. It's so interesting that the art can convey so much forward thinking vision and that it, it for the most people, most, you know, collectors of art, it might feel totally inaccessible. And to the mainstream media, I, it is totally un, like they cannot comprehend um, for the most part. And everything gets diluted down to uh, like dollar signs. Uh, that's the simplest, most digestible information that can be conveyed. Uh, but the depth is just incredibly compelling. And when I meet people like you, I really get so inspired um, just to know that all across the world, some of the most intelligent people are like putting all of themselves, their knowledge, all of this, like looking into the future of where we're going and bringing this into an artwork and it, it really translates. Absolutely, yeah. Are there any uh, artists in the space that you admire or you took reference from? I have many artists, uh, so, uh, Maybe I can give a few examples. Uh, I met Sogwen Chun uh, recently. Uh, I met her at the, her talk at SIGGRAPH. Uh, I really like her art, uh, and I also like uh, the way uh, her perspective is, basically, uh, with the way she looks at artificial intelligence and sees it as a collaborator rather than uh, being independent agents. She has a, a lot of uh, interesting uh, projects. And other than that, I'm very interested in actually novel techniques in photography. I'm not a photographer myself, but yeah. I find photographers who have found innovative ways to capture light, very inspiring. Uh, Ruben Wu, for example, does that. He does uh, drone photography, but he does it in a different way. So instead of putting cameras on drones, what he does is that he puts the lights on the drones and then does light paint, uh, painting with lights at night. And it shows familiar landscapes in a very unfamiliar way. I find it very innovative. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Frost also uh, has uh, similar uh, styles. He also plays with light and uh, shows uh, familiar uh, scenes in an unfamiliar way. It's, some people can say that like you can do that all digitally, but I find it fascinating that you can use that only using light, uh, basically. I think this is the as innovative as photography gets. Uh, as a person who works on tools, uh, that uh, make photography better. Uh, I, I'm providing tools, basically I'm developing tools for photographers, although I'm not a photographer myself, working on computational photography. So I, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely incredible. I mean, the, the photography community in NFTs is, is incredible. They obviously very much found a solution here uh, for their work and it's, it's wonderful just to see the amount of support um, in, you know, in a medium that was always kind of disregarded in, in fine art. And I find it actually pretty similar to AI art. People usually regard photography as like super easy because you just like push a button and you're done. And same for AI art, they say like, okay, write the prompt, push the button, you're done. But actually like you can, there are infinitely many ways that you can get very innovative and creative. It's not really that much of a limited medium. And we have like many artists that prove that both in AI art space and photography space. I, I totally agree. And it's, it's incredible also when that tool that is perceivably so accessible 
um, people are able to kind of craft their own style that is immediately recognizable. Right. Which I think actually you do quite well as well. Thank you. Uh, do you have a, a favorite published work? Uh, in terms of art or my yeah piece, yeah uh, in terms of in terms of your artwork. I think one of my my last piece uh, what I realized is that like there is very little correlation between how much effort goes into one piece of art and how much uh, attention it uh, gets uh, from viewers my last yeah. piece I think it, it was it was one of the pieces that uh, I put so much effort in it it had like lots of uh, novel components uh, but uh, and this it is wasn't a machine, sold for a long time a yes, machine uh, dreams of nature exactly yes that, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is exceptionally beautiful. Are you familiar with, uh, you know, Robbie Barat's work, the early work that he did is super rare? Oh, yeah, 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 I've seen that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I feel like, because he did, you know, first examination of, of nude form and nude bodies, and then also kind of a series on, on landscape art before stepping away, and I... I really uh, get in, inspired from your work as kind of just an incredible extension of this narrative. Um, yeah, I, are there other, you know, perhaps AI artists? That, yeah, that... yeah, there, there's uh, Rafik Anadol, for example. His art totally. is uh, visually stunning yeah. uh, and uh, he puts so much emphasis on data. I think that's one of the differences between my art and his art. Uh, I do admire his art, but uh, that's one of the biggest differences. He puts so much emphasis on data uh, and uh, he, he calls his artworks as data sculptures. Uh, right. Maybe because I come from an engineering background, I'm a minimalist person. I try to get away by like using as minimal as possible. If I don't have to use data, I don't use data. For example, uh, if I can just use a pseudo random number generator, I, I would just use that. I wouldn't use a quantum computer to compute that. Or if I can like fine tune an existing model with a couple of thousands of images, uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I actually don't have the resources to collect like hundreds of thousands of images or hundreds of millions of images and train a model to create a right. piece of art. I mean, this is this is a uh, kind of a, a big component of AI art as well. This the use of processing power, right, and the access to right. to processing power. I don't know if that's like trade secrets, but um, it it almost feels like a like kind of like a mini arms war between you know these types of artists who always have the most and always have the access mm -hmm. to to that best tech. I'm kind of out of that arms race. Uh, I'm more on the efficiency side, but also like some of the papers I published in the past, I focused uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of my time on uh, building more efficient models. Also, when I was at Intel before Apple, uh, I published a couple of papers, how to run models more efficiently on hardware and like how to make things more efficient. Do we really need this? And like, how, what can we throw out and get away with that? To make the architectures more efficient at many different levels. Like if some of them are like very low level stuff, can we like quantize it? Can we use like fewer bits? And some of them are like uh, higher level, like architectural choices. Like, can we just drop this block, replace it with something else? That's why like all of the models I use are like extremely efficient and usually they don't need that much data or training either. I, I, as an artist, like I don't, I don't have much resources as I have at work. For example, at work, I right. only have access to so much stuff. But uh, when I do my artworks, what I use is usually like a single personal GPU, and everything needs to ah. fit in, in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have like a cluster. I don't have uh, 
right now actually i'm not doing much training uh, with the release of the stability uh, stable diffusion sure. uh, yeah I, I can just like tune it in some ways that i like uh, but i don't definitely need to retrain the whole thing from scratch which would need massive amounts of resources yeah it's it's incredible it's yeah it's it's incredible how do you feel about um gosh this is this is kind of a loaded question but like you know i i consider always people's access to processing power and like the conversations that they can begin to have with ai and data as kind of like the great separator in the future and those that have have the access will continue to always be so much further ahead than people who don't or may not understand it um how do you feel I about think that? yeah I, I think one of the good things here is that the ones who are pushing the field are not artists usually like they don't have they tend not all of them but they tend to lack artistic skill and the artists don't have that much resources so it's not like artists uh, are competing with each other based on uh, the amount of resources they have i think foundational models will bring everybody uh, the tools they uh, need to be creative uh, things like uh, stable diffusion for example it's what it's doing is basically what's other large language models that's for uh, generating and uh, answering questions or doing anything language related, basically. This is the image equivalent of that. And uh, as we keep having more and more models like that, people won't have to create their models, everything from scratch. They can just like modify it in their way. And there are also like some other research papers coming out about like how you can partially tune them in some ways that you don't have to tune the rest. So you can reuse and repurpose basically as much as you can of what you have. Uh, and you can, there's like so much room for creativity in there for artists. Do you think there is a future where we have, you know, such intelligent AI and powerful AI that it's, uh, that humanity might be able to kind of take a step back? I, at least at today's state, if you look at today's state of the art, I'm not really scared of AI because I know how it works. It's just like matrix multiplications. But one yep. can also argue that what's happening in our brain is just like chemical reactions, how, how, what makes us different. But uh, if I just look at what AI is, it's just, it's just a bunch of matrix multiplications done on GPUs. I don't think it poses any direct threat to us right now. <laughs> it may make some jobs obsolete. Uh, and it's funny that pe when people were uh, scared of AI, they were saying like, yeah, they're going to come for like manual labor first. It's going to be going to replace <laughs> like uh, workers on restaurants and like truck drivers. And then they're going to come for like software engineers and like more uh, uh, cognitively demanding jobs and right. lawyers and stuff. And then uh, finally, maybe they may or may not come for artists, but it happened in the reverse direction. First, they started generating art. And then there's this GitHub copilot that writes code. And it, it's pretty well. I, I tried it. It's like incredible. Uh, it's As a pair programmer, um, I, I don't need to look at, look up like Stack Overflow or something. It completes really well. So they're coming for software engineers next. And apparently, uh, manual labor will be replaced the last by AI. Oh, even though, even though we got Elon Musk working on those robots. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, robots. <laughs> Robots, so funny. Um, so then, so then, you know, the prognosis is is perhaps for more free time and a society of abundance. Yeah, yeah, it depends on how politics also go. Like, uh, if we reach some uh, some point where we don't need to do anything, like not 
anything, but most of the jobs are replaced by AI. We'll need some way to have an economy. So maybe we can discuss things like universal basic income if we ever reach to that point, uh, because we need to, we need to live. So <laughs> um, we, if you create machines and then they have their own economy, they consume them, they become obsolete. Sure. I always, uh, you know, kind of thought some of these new gen uh, cryptocurrency protocols were really just, I mean, what was, um, uh, oh gosh, it was, it was, I for, it was really just a protocol developed for uh, microtransactions between machines. So, and I forget the name, but it was all the rage in, in 2017. I never, never heard. So machines can basically transact with each other. They can have their own economy without having humans in the loop. Exactly. They can share data and reward each other for it. And they can mm -hmm. build these incentive models with, with, and I always thought that was endlessly fascinating. I think it was probably ahead of its time. Uh, the name is escaping me. But I always thought some of these yeah, new gen yeah. protocols were, were meant to fill that role. I think one thing that can go wrong with AI is that uh, the way we formulate the goals, uh, the lo loss functions or cost functions, what we uh, ask them to optimize for, basically, they they can always like go out of their way, find a hack or shortcut to do like some reward hacking to accomplish yeah. whatever they were instructed to do, but in not not in ways that we want them to do. Actually, this is not only a problem in AI, it also I happens in humans say. as well. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you put like whatever, whatever benchmark you have or like whatever criteria for evaluation you have, people will just optimize for that. For like standardized tests or like SAT or like in some right. other countries, it's even more competitive. Uh, all in your entire career, or like future life depends on a single exam. So you start like memorizing patterns uh, in questions to be like as fast and as accurate as possible. But you don't really generalize that information to anything beyond that. I think uh, most people will, will argue that uh, the things that they learned or were taught uh, really never had any application. It's kind of how, how you learned and kind of how you were taught to think. That didn't and really apply to me. Like uh, things I learned in school, actually, many of them were very useful. Of course, like many things I learned, I've never used again, but... Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, coming from soft sciences like myself, you know, I think more of the, the technical sciences are... Uh, yeah, certainly more useful. So, so uh, you said economics, right? That has a technical uh, side as well. Economics and psychology. Sure, there was like yeah. econometrics and statistics, and but yeah, yeah it, it it frankly informed very uh, little. It was also you know during the I was studying this during the uh, the Great Recession, so it was <laughs> almost like all of the rules that they had taught were just like thrown out the window. None because, of them works anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was just like okay, well, like this all works until you. You know, everything is 80 to 100 times levered. <laughs> yeah. As it feels though, it's very interesting, like both economics and psychology, what they have in common is that they both study human behavior, but one focuses on the financial aspect of it and the other one uh, focuses on non-financial uh, aspect of their behavior. Yeah, the interpersonal. It was, it was, <laughs> I, I had a great time. Yeah, and it certainly has, has led me here. So no complaints. Um, what else? What are you exploring now in your artwork? I've been playing with stable diffusion lately. I was looking into diffusion models. Looks like GANs are pretty much dead at this point, generative adversarial networks. Yeah. Uh, they seem to beat 
uh, them in almost every aspect. There are still like some aspects that uh, where GANs are better, for example, for interpolations uh, in the latent space, uh, GANs are more smooth. Uh, diffusion models are still like a bit jerky. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if you have like a specific domain, usually GANs tend to work better. So diffusion models have better diversity you can generate with whatever you want with them, basically once you train them. But with GANs, if you want to generate like faces, if they're aligned and everything is perfect, then you can create hyper-realistic faces that's any resolution uh, very efficiently. So I've been, I've been looking at like combining techniques and to get the best of both worlds. I always have like lots of experiments on the side, like whenever on a weekend I'm bored, I come up with an idea, I give them a try. They usually don't work. Sometimes they work. When they work, uh, it's, it's really nice. And I want to show it to everyone when it works. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. So, you know, I, I only ask because I'm, I'm a big fan. You haven't minted work in a little bit. So I, I would presume you're in sort of like a research and, and study phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, both like I, I was also, uh, I had a lot of work to do for my the primary job as well. Sure. Uh, I, yeah, I, in the meantime, I changed teams. So uh, ramping up takes more effort uh, when you change teams. So I, I, I was focusing more on that. Usually I, on weekends, I don't do any work for my work. Uh, right. I have them completely free. I, I have it free right now too. That was one of the reasons uh, I was very busy with that. And another reason was... Uh, I didn't. I, I had a filter. Like I did a lot of work actually that I didn't put uh, at the beginning. I I was posting things not under my name. I had an alias uh, called like Marcus and Friends. That's how I created my uh, first in Instagram account. Marcus yeah. was the name of the model I had. Basically, I just named it Marcus. Uh, uh, so since I was not putting my name on it, I had no filter. Like whatever I do, I was posting it. I, I was uh, posting like sometimes multiple times a day, whatever experiment I have, whatever results I got, like some of them were good and some of them were like not so great. Uh, once I revealed my real name and I started to have a higher bar for publishing, uh, if I'm not like fully confident that I really love it. I try not to uh, put it on the market or not, not even on my Instagram account. I, I've done yeah. some uh, some work that I didn't mint as NFTs, for example, with uh, the um, a rock band, uh, Palais Royale, uh, em Emerson Barrett. Uh, we made like two music videos, uh, one for uh, called Lifeless Stars. Uh, it may, may be one of the first music videos that used the, a tuned version of Stable Diffusion. Uh, we also had like a Spanish version of their recent song uh, called Broken that was out yesterday. Cool. I'm going to, you know, after this, I'm going to go check that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're at the end of time. I have found you incredibly fascinating. And I really, really thank you for, for taking the time to be here. Uh, the last word is yours. And please do let people know where they can find you, find your art, and if you want them to contact you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a great pleasure being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. They can find me on Instagram. I have an Instagram account. Uh, it's my name and last name. Uh, it's leoisikdogan.com. Uh, uh, Leo is my handle. I also have a website where I have my portfolio for all kinds of work, not only artwork. I have my publications and my engineering work and uh, my YouTube videos as well. It's my last name.com, isikdogan.com. People can find me there as well. Uh, I have a super rare account where I have my NFTs. I haven't been minting for a while, um, but uh, I may mint new pieces in the future. They can check them out as well. Yeah, stay tuned for that. And if yeah, you don't know yeah. the work, go check the work out. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah. and we'll wrap here. I'm super, super grateful. <laughs> I'm Colborn Bell, Museum of Crypto Art. We thank Diminti for the production. Incredible episode, Leo Isik Dogan. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great uh, meeting you and uh, seeing you here. Thanks for having me. Breaking news. Breaking news.